Welcome to From the Booth, the weekly podcast sponsored by BYU's International Cinema Program. I'm Chip Oscarson, one of the directors for International Cinema. This is our Week in Review episode in which we discuss the films that just played at International Cinema. We're still in the middle of the COVID-19 shutdown here at BYU, but International Cinema continues through a limited streaming format. If you haven't already signed up to get access to IC's streaming films, go to our website, ic.byu.edu, for more information. Today we're going to be discussing the films that showed as part of our virtual program between the 25th and 28th of March. Because these films have already played, we'll talk about them with no spoiler alert, so feel free to use the time codes in the program notes if you need to skip forward in the conversation to preserve any crucial plot points. The films we'll be talking about today include Varda by Agnes, the last film written and directed by the great French filmmaker Agnes Varda. She passed away last year. Fittingly, it's a documentary about her work. We also have The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, the oldest surviving feature-length animated film by Lothar Reiniger from 1926, and then lastly, The Exterminating Angel by the great Louis Buñuel from 1962. We decided to wait for the screening of Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, for this fall because we have plans for an event in connection with that and showing some of the films of Alice Guy Blachet. More on that later. We'll start by looking at Varda by Agnes. Here to discuss the film, I have former IC co-director Daryl Lee. He's now the chair of the French and Italian department. Welcome, Daryl. It's good to be here. Um, so get us started a little bit. What's interesting about Agnes Varda as a filmmaker generally, and you know, maybe specifically about this documentary? Uh, several things, to be honest uh, with you. Varda did not begin as a filmmaker, but when you live to the ripe old age of 90 and you're really interested in making things, visual things. She calls herself a visual artist. She loves the, she doesn't like the French term plasticien. She prefers the English phrase visual artist, and she says as much in this documentary. You're, you're bound to encounter film in the, in the last you know, 60, 70 years of, of history of, of the arts, visual arts in France. And this is the case for her. She's a visual artist. Film is one of her primary media and she loves it. So for one, you get this interest in film that is not simply about commercial pro uh, production. That's a topic that she addresses in this particular documentary. Two, you have a person who was involved with one of the most important film movements in the history of world cinema, which is the French New Wave. She was a major contributor to it. She wasn't necessarily known as a doctrinaire kind of contributor where she's writing and trying to explain what the movement meant. She was a practitioner and a very thoughtful one. Her husband of many years, Jacques Demy, was also a very well-respected New Way filmmaker. And so she provides insights and, and a voice that's unique in that set of filmmakers, most of whom were, were male. She's also a world traveler and I think provides some interesting perspectives on culture, say, in America. She lived for a time in Los Angeles and Hollywood with her husband. And so she makes movies, and then all of a sudden you start to see through her eyes a different view of Los Angeles or of Chicano culture or Hollywood itself. Uh, and she's just a, a spunky firehouse of a person. She's got lots of personality. And so you discover all of these traits that are often rooted in a basic interest in humans, people. Individuals very, even. Right? Individuals, a very sincere interest in individuals, a listening ear, and, and somebody who's willing to take on projects. Like she, you know, she might take on a project and it fails and even fails spectacularly. 
ho-hum. I'm moving on. I'm going on to my yeah. next project. That's art sometimes. And so you have a kind of healthy attitude about uh, creative processes and products and even critical reception. It doesn't matter. So I think that she provides an interest, interesting biography as a creator, as a maker of, of, of films and other things. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about this documentary particularly is it's kind of set up around a... a a lecture, so to speak, on on her film, and and she's she's talking to an audience in several different you know different places about her film. You get the sense that maybe this is something that she did was you know kind of on the tour, and that and they they filmed it, and then they spiced it up with you know actually showing the film clips that, of things that she's talking about. And particularly, I think in her later work, maybe like the late latter half of her career, she, her presence becomes imp increasingly important, particularly in her uh, documentary films, right? And she has such a wonderful presence. She has a persona, right? There's the Agnes Varna persona yes. that comes across so beautifully, I think, in this film. You hear you know, her, her voice, both literally, but also artistically, that you really understand at least how she thinks about what a Varda film was all about. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we're, we're free to interpret them as, as we wish. But there's, I think there's something really valuable in hearing her talk about her own work that way because she always had a presence as almost a character, like I said, especially in these documentary films. Absolutely. That voice is particularly important. Here's a person who, as you said, increasingly near the end of her career, had lots of, of voiceover. She's always been interested in painting and talks about her interest in uh, self-portraits in particular, which might seem like a contradiction if she's also interested in others, and she, she, she addresses this problem, but she speaks. You don't just see her, she speaks, and you hear the most simple questions about her own life, mortality, the frailty of her body, her loves, what she does in a very ordinary, everyday sense. All of these things come through in this very distinctive voice, and she has a particular pace to her films and to the way she speaks. And I find it quite appealing. It's it's very intelligent, mm -hmm. but it's slow and it's digestible. And it's you, not it's jargony. Wonderful. It's no, very accessible. It's very clear. I mean, you know, for me that, you know, French is, is a, you know, a third language and it's, it's not it's not my best you know language, but I, I don't have trouble understanding when she speaks. Right. It's um, and I, I think Absolute that's clarity. true for, you know, whether you're an academic or, you know, it's kind of, you know, someone with with no formal education. Um, that she's able to, to meet those people. And you see her doing this in her films, actually, too. This is an interesting element of the, the film that um, we're showing Varda by Agnès. It began as a mini-series that was uh, shown in two episodes in France um, and put together, I think, wisely in, the, in this particular film for broader distribution. It's a lot about the process of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that everyone's going to to enjoy this particular Varda film, but anyone who's interested in how movies are made and with a, with a kind of dismissive attitude about large budget productions might learn something from this. Yeah. Listening to this, the simple choices, the simple decisions, how you begin in the creative process with an idea and you figure out the structure for something. She explains these things. She lays them out in, in a very helpful way. So filmmakers or people interested in filmmaking, this is a movie to see. Well, and a female auteur as well. Yes. I mean, she fits that auteur model in that she exerts a kind of creative control over her work by sidestepping the big budget sorts of things and all the strings that come attached with that kind of production. And one of the few 
you know, kind of people that we can talk about that, you know, kind of over decades has this, you know, kind of body of work. And, and so maybe that it's a nice counterpoint as well to some of these other, these other models of filmmaking. Sure. I, going back to her age and the, the length of her career, I would never want to cordon her off and be, have her just be the sort of lingering uh, new wave filmmaker. She does lots of interesting documentary work. Um, her travels take her away from what might be a very closed yeah. Uh, a French cultural milieu. She makes uh, uh, interesting documentaries about mural art in, in Los Angeles, in, somewhere around 1980, yeah. uh, Mur Mur. She makes a film around 1970 that has to do with the Black Panthers, which is almost purely accidental. She just yeah. happens to be in California at this time and films. And, and, and films them with a, a kind of charity that was not being afforded to them for maybe obvious reasons. Uh, they were, you know, a very kind of strident, you know, militaristic, you know, sort of tone that, you know, scared Americans, white Americans, you know, to death. She she shows them in a different kind of light as, as human beings who themselves are reacting to fear and, you know, in a sense of oppression. And it creates a different, you know, sense of what that's all about. I think that she wisely, she, she laughs about saying, I'm just here with the French TV, you know, and her English isn't very good at the time. And they say, okay, well, you can be here at our, at our rallies and our speeches and our, our, our exercises. And this is something she's gotten away with a lot. Yeah. I think she's also interesting for anybody who's looking into media studies for her flexibility with technology. A very important change comes when digital cameras come uh, of age in the late 90s, early 2000s, or at least they're more widespread and the quality is good. And th there's never this, this sense of, I've got to do everything in 35 millimeter, or it's only going to be super eight for me, you know? Yeah. Uh, she says, oh, I'm interested in the portability of these new things. And there's a visual quality to the digital image, it's pixelation, that you don't get. And she sees it as a kind of kaleidoscopic effect. It's mm -hmm. not a deficiency of this new technology. It's actually an opportunity. It's a resource. And that's what produces one of the greatest uh, documentary films in French history, The Gleaners and I. Yeah. And it's also a beautiful essay and a self-portrait at the same time. So many things. And this image also of the marginalized in France, biblical practices, all of these wrapped up into this beautiful, coherent whole in The Gleaners. And it comes in part from her saying, oh, I, wanted, I want to experiment with this new technology. And I'm not, I don't have any presuppositions. I don't have any bias against yeah, it. And right. you see the wonderful places it takes her. Yeah. Something that really spoke to me is that she talks about, one of the things she sees going on in her work is bringing together reality and representation. And a really good example of this in the in the documentary was they uh, they talked about the film that we showed here at International Cinema a couple of years ago, Faces Places. And the, the basic project was to go with the visual artist JR, a photographer who does a lot of these interesting installations, kind of where you're, it's a similar kind of project really, showing, bring your reality and representation together. They head out to the French countryside and they take pictures of the people there and they put them in these big formats and in different kinds of ways. And the very people who are in those photographs see themselves in a different kind of way. What do you make of this bringing reality and representation together? What's, what's created by doing that, do you think? Well, for one thing, uh, this is where she's not so jargonistic. She has a philosophy about films and about people. And the philosophy is, while she respects documentary filmmakers like uh, French Depardon 
or I don't know, Nicolas Philibert, who are making to be and to have. They're, they're making these things where they want to pull from reality and yeah. leave it sort of as intact Slice as possible. Of life, yeah. She doesn't want that. She says, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a creator. I'm a, I, I want to remake that world. I want to remodel it, to sculpt it. And voice editing, mm -hmm. repetition, the frequency of, of repeated events as they're edited into her films, all of these play into this. And she's basically saying, no, I have a power and I need to assert that power or else I'm not fulfilling my duty as, as an artist. And what's beautiful about it, and I think this is where there's something magical about some. Is this her scénicriture, which she calls about yes. the cinema writing exactly. kind of thing? It's, it's an active process. It's not just capturing what's in front of no, you. No, absolutely not. You are, are shaping it. You're involved in it. It's right? manipulated. And yet that doesn't take away from the humanity of the people that she's interested exactly, yeah. in, including her own yeah. uh, frail humanity. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a fabulous, there's, there's kind of a theoretical thrust under that. She doesn't need to go and explain it and argue for it and manifest, you know, or write a manifesto about it mm -hmm. and demonstrate this is, you know, the right way to do things. She just says, this is what I do and this yeah. is how I approach it. And she's, she's unapologetic about it. And that's something that's extremely healthy, I think, for any, any artist and, and critics as well to appreciate. Yeah, it's a real loss that she's not with us anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's something quite tender too about the relationship that she has with the elderly if i could point this out yeah. at a time when covid19 is looking to you know almost hurt out a certain element of of our society the elderly are much more vulnerable her film about the widows of noirmoutier yeah, where she lived exactly. rejected me is a very beautiful portrait with a very interesting kind of multimedia presentation mm -hmm. installation art it's not just a film but there's a tenderness and an openness uh, to the women that she interviews. And then the relationship that she develops with JR is really quite beautiful as well. He treats her with an incredible amount of respect and she kind of replies in kind. Yeah. Uh, and we don't see enough of that. Or if it is, it's so fictionalized, it's so staged that it lacks some of the the reality, yeah. as much as she, manip she manipulates it. And so I think that's one of the beautiful uh, subplots of Faces Places is that grandson-like surrogate grandmother relationship that the two artists share. Yeah. The film is Varda by Agnes, directed by Agnes Varda, the last film that she directed before she uh, passed away this last year. Daryl, thank you so much for being with My us pleasure. again. Good luck to IC. Joining me now to talk about the adventures of Prince Ahmed, as well as cinema studies here in the college, is my dear friend Rob McFarland from the German department. He's also an affiliate faculty with International Cinema Studies and Global Women's Studies. He's heavily involved in European studies. There's nothing that Rob is not involved with. We've known each other a long time, and we've even had the great pleasure to team teach. Welcome back to the podcast, Rob. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk to the international cinema crowd. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about, just to help people know you a little bit better, what are some of the things that you teach? What are the things that you do here in the university, your research, that kind of thing? For the German department, I, uh, I run the cultural history classes for return missionaries. I've done that almost every semester for 20 years. And it's a joy. I really enjoyed that. Um, Legendary is what I think it is. It's yeah. really fun. And for in the cinema world, you and I teach, of course, German and Scandinavian 217, which is a film that is not a historical overview, but takes mostly contemporary films and 
we, we try to mix them together and have the, a German film and a Scandinavian film talk to each other about themes like gender and ideology and masculinity, things like that. Uh, lots of fun. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorite favorite classes to teach. This semester, I'm doing something new. I'm teaching a class called The Gender Camera, Women and World Cinema. And in The Gendered Camera, we look at how gender is portrayed in film and how we make that. And uh, we do a little bit of historical, but all sorts of things. The, the historical method I wanted to use was to look at things that are really, really important for women's studies and see how that happens in film. Now, to do this, we have taken a, a Girl Scout theme, I guess, with the end of Boy Scouts. This is kind of, <laughs> we, we take it over with some nostalgia. So we, we earn merit badges. Uh, there's a certain numbers of merit badges. They write sequence analyses and turn in their film notes and do a project, for example, for the... Yeah, you have a few of them laid out here in, in front of me. They look like some great graphic design here. There's some, yeah, there are buttons that we actually give. These are actual merit badges. The ones we have here are... Uh, we have visual literacy that comes, and then uh, this one is scopophilia, as we watch Cleo from five to seven. <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, it's an important one. So a little pair of binoculars here. Uh, a first wave with a woman at hand and a sign. Pioneer women filmmakers, which is the one we're going to come back to with, uh, yeah. with Lotte Reiniger today. This is subjectivity with a little queen bee on it. <laughs> Third wave feminism, eco-feminism. Uh, this is my favorite one. Intersectionality that shows women of uh, different races and embracing each other. Yeah. Uh, it's a really beautiful. Um, Genesis Jimenez designed these for us and she's a genius. And this is our no means no merit badge. We've also <laughs> got queer cinema merit badge and a couple of others that are coming along here that are that we will show at uh, another time. Well, I followed the class just a little bit at a distance this semester and know you've used a lot of international cinema films for it. I hope this is going to, something that will come back. It this, is. We're this isn't teach a one-time thing. Every other year, if we can, or more, if we can, uh, if we can uh, have students that are interested in gender and cinema. The interesting thing is we have not shown a, a, a film yet in the class. Of our 26 films we're going to show, not one is not made by a woman filmmaker in some way. So right. the, these are all really brilliant films, fun films by women filmmakers or screenwriters or you know th things along those lines or cinematographers. And so we're not only talking about women in film, but we're talking women and film and the film that they make. And this year, that is more important than anything after the, uh, the route at the Academy Award. Yeah. Well, and I think about, you know, what's going down with Harvey Weinstein and, and things mm -hmm. like that, too, that this is a really pivotal moment for for women's participation and how they participate and, and how they've not been allowed to participate in, in different kinds of ways in the industry. So it's a time of reevaluation and hopefully new directions. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I started this class thinking, well, it'll be fun. I'll see if I can find, if I can find some films by women that we can put together. And oh my goodness, I had no idea, none of the breadth and depth and beauty and history of women's cinema. There are some gems out there that have knocked me off of my seat and our students still are talking about them and having just a, a really important experience. All of us are discovering together how important it is that we watch cinema by women. A voice that's always been there but has been uh, chronically overlooked, right? Exactly. That's, that's great. So what's the name of the class again? The class is called Global Women's Studies 390R or International Cinema Studies 490R. And the title of the class is The Gendered Camera, Women and World Cinema.
Great. Yeah, that, that'll be something to, to watch for and to, to come back for. Okay, so today we're going to talk uh, more specifically about Lothe Reiniger and the adventures of Prince Ahmed. This, of course, if you remember from the preview show, is the oldest surviving feature-length animated film. Which not is by a, Walt Disney. You'll not, not by Walt Disney. That's exactly right. And so tell us a little bit about the, the background, a little bit about Lotte Reiniger, too, because she's a really interesting figure. Lotte Reiniger is fascinating. She makes her first animated film in 1919. She is a collaborator with some of the greatest minds of film in the Weimar Republic era of Germany. This is between the wars, where the Weimar Republic is one of the leading filmmaking areas uh, along with Hollywood. This is the place where some of the most important uh, groundbreaking films are being made. Well, and they were looking at things a different way too, right? Because this is the era after World War One. I. I mean, Germany is completely devastated by the war. And in a lot of respects, I mean, to say starting from scratch isn't, isn't maybe quite appropriate, but new things were possible because of this disruption, right? Well, the disruption was a break from the past. Yeah. Everything that had been important in the past, the Kaiser and the old guard and this the, the idea that you took legitimacy from history and everything that was, there was a, a break and suddenly experimentation was the key. And there were all sorts of people doing things that had never been done before, including an animated full-length feature film done with Indonesian style <clears throat> shadow puppets. And so the shadow puppet thing was something yeah. completely new, but also very, very much informed by the experimentation that was going on. Hans Richter at this time, a, a member of Dada, had been working with animated film, of course, yeah. in some of his really early films that came out like Rhythm <clears throat> 21, Rhythmus right. 21, where he took different forms and he, he imagined an art. Even his his art that was hung on the walls had to do with time. He made scrolls that could be moved past. Yeah. And so, of course, film was the next level. Yeah. And he is a great influence on Lotte Reiniger and especially Walter Ruttmann, who will go on to produce Berlin Symphony of a Great City. Right, kind of experimental <coughs> documentary. Yeah, I'm not sure what to, to classify. Uh, just showing it. lots of, of, yeah. of scenes of the city. Not narrative at any rate. No, but it, it, right at the beginning of that, of that film, the tracks under a train are switching around each other, machinery is going off, and there's a point where all of this crazy movement in the city is too much, and so they switch over to animation and just these abstract forms. Yeah. And if you see the beginning of Lotte Reiniger's Adventures of Prince Ahmed, you get these free-flowing, yeah. swelling forms that turn into frames where the characters are then placed. Well, they're kind of pulsating sometimes. I and mean, I really did think of it in this, you know, 21 or the Viking Egling uh, film from this era that, you know, he's making in Germany too, the uh, Symphony Diagonal, mm -hmm. that where it's just shapes and lights and, you know, it's it's like embracing the the ability of the medium to be dynamic and to to change, right? That things one thing changes into the next, and that there's it's a temporal medium. It doesn't just exist statically in space. That's and that's and all these things are are playing out in front of my eyes too in in uh, in this film. Exactly, those early forms are almost indistinguishable from what Walter Ruttmann is doing in yeah. in Symphony of a Great City. And he's working with her. He is a consultant on this. He's in the in yeah. the credits of the film. They're working very, very closely together. And she branches off into animation. One of the things that I am really interested in, first of all, she'll later go on to do a film about Papageno, one of the characters from the Magic Flute. And yet motifs from the Magic Flute show up 
throughout the adventures of Prince Ahmed as That's well. Right. And so she was very much in bird costume, right? right. The, the, yeah. the fact that these people have the, the bird costumes, but also the when Prince Ahmed goes into Makmak, into the or Vakvak, into the land of yeah. um, of this uh, enchanted island, that all of the attendants of this queen fight over him and are all yeah. erotically drawn to him. And that's a scene right out of the beginning of The Magic Flute, which right. you probably know from Bergman. Yeah, I do, all um, too well. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so she's, she's picking that up from her own cultural tradition and bringing that. So it's a, this is an early fusion of shadow puppets from Indonesia and the magic flute her own, you know, from Austria. Well, and a, and a mythology or however you want to think of 1000, you know, one Arabian nights from the Middle East, from, from North East. Africa. And I mean, there's actually some troubling orientalization going on, of course, through uh, through this, which is, you know, pretty endemic to the, you know, to the era. But it, it is surprisingly eclectic that way, right? It's very eclectic and showing a curiosity that's experimenting in all these different ways. Yeah. Speaking of problematic things in there, we want to talk about the representations of women. We always want to think that cinema by women will always be uh, enlightened and move gender forward. But of yeah. course, she's taking tales that are not that way. The Magic Flute, certainly not. One of the great misogynist <laughs> operas. Although there, there are fissures in there that are very sure. interesting. <laughs> and here, of course, we have a princess who is a treasure, who's, who be, who seized. And, and and seems to be, from what I can tell, like completely unable to make a decision on her own no. or act on her own. <laughs> uh, well, we have several female characters yeah. like that in here. A female is a commodity. The idea that her body is given away because she's a treasure of her father's. Right. And this is an, an old problem that we have here. We have scopophilia, the idea that the male gaze can objectify women as we have Prince Ahmed hiding in the bushes, watching this woman and her attendants bathe in, and the poor woman doesn't get dressed for the rest of the movie. No, I know, he, um, he steals the, you know, the outfit. He steals he her clothes and won't give yeah. her her clothes back. So there's that problem. <laughs> Prince Ahmed, forcing this beautiful woman and you're know, drawn in by her beauty and forcing her and kidnapping her and taking her with them, the kidnapping of the princess, chasing her there. They're, and, and then her being sold to, right. the, to yeah. the, the, the emperor yeah, she's in China. A, completely a commodity. Right? right. So the women here are in, are not in a great place to actually move except of course, for the witch. That's what I was going to say. There's, there's one big exception, right? With the, with the witch who has incredible autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. And is the, I mean, ultimately the source of power that, she saves everybody. Saves everyone, yeah. And so maybe maybe the, the women figure can be redeemed, but of course it's a witch. Of course it's a witch. <laughs> that has to redeem it. It cannot be. So here we have the choice that you can be either a beautiful treasure that is kept away behind bars and bought and sold, or you're a witch. You're yeah. somebody outside of society. This is by, has to be outside the boundaries, right? Because you're because you're uncontrollable and unpredictable, and right, right. And so women are above or below culture. They can't just be normal people making normal decisions and mistakes. They either have to be absolute treasures up on a pedestal or thrown yeah. away on the bottom and be satanic and witchy and things like that. So, yeah. which is a big, big problem. However, on the other hand, we do have this woman taking control of everything at the end and bringing it back into, yeah. in, into balance and, and making a happy ending happen. Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's the adventures of Prince Ahmed, his limits are shown and this female character has to step in for him. That's right. Some of my favorite parts of this, I love when Aladdin builds the palace and you see it assemble itself magically through mm -hmm. animation. Through it reminded me of the Elsa scene in in Frozen, <laughs> right? Where where this where this magical force is creating this big palace, which I thought was lots of fun. I also noticed that it's not only the animation that makes this movie magical. And now she did this in a really really interesting way. Um, they call this a multi-pane camera, right. which is just the same camera as any other camera. But there was a series of five or six 
layers of glass that it would shoot down through. And she would assemble these things on different layers, sometimes using liquid to make some of those really interesting movements uh, when the magician is doing his fingers, yeah. that little marbling thing. So that's, you know, his hands would have been a puppet that she's moving on one level that she mm -hmm. cut out of black paper and weighted down with lead. And then on another level, on another layer of glass would have been liquids or other things that she's moving around that makes it have this magical look. And then the lighting and the colors, of course. The colors right. were rediscovered. This film, there's no original um, negative of it, but they found a print in the British Museum, a British film and TV museum. And they combined that with a newly discovered, in 1999, they discovered an original musical score in the Library of Congress that had pictures of it in it and also the talked about the colors yeah. and then some notes from the censors in Germany. And they were able to put this together in what they think is very, very close to what originally was on the screen and the colors switch. The lighting is amazing, but sometimes it's overexposed and sometimes yeah. we have it feeling very, very dark. And so it's not only animation. The other fascinating thing is that this is animation of real things on real. It's yeah. basically like Wallace and Gromit. It's stop motion animation. Right. Um, it, there were... Well, there's kind of a, this tactile dimension to it, right? That it, it's more about craft than it is about mechanization. Yes. If you want to think about that as a kind of a tension in, in modernism, right? That it's, I mean, it's, it's making use of both. Of course, it's a mechanical, you know, delivery, you know, to us is being mediated through that, that process. But this awareness that there is this, like you're saying, you know, that these are, need to be manipulated, you know, by hand. And I'm told, although in my watching of it, I couldn't catch it. There are actually a couple frames in the film where you see part of her hand, <laughs> which I think is unintentional i don't think it's it's intentional but they're you know single frames in the you know well there are 24 of these per second they made two hundred and fifty thousand individual shots wow and in this film are ninety six thousand frames yeah uh, put together and it's uh, it's an amazing feat of stop action animation yeah so it's closer in a lot of ways to the fantastic mr fox than <laughs> it right. is to than it is to frozen for example yeah which is a computer animation well i think of there's a contemporary french uh, animator who he's best known for uh, kiriku um which is you know just kind of straight up you know animation but he he, he plays with the silhouette style he has a, a series called prince and princess so prince mm -hmm. and princesses uh, which i don't think has been widely distributed in the united states where he he draws yeah, and I didn't realize that he was getting a lot of this from Reiniger. I mean, now going back and seeing, you know, this work, it's like, whoa, this is like, you know, it's it's invoking all of these things. I mean, even kind of the Oriental kind of aesthetic, you know, he he draws on, I think he's picking up from, you know, from Reiniger, actually. Well, for years and years, of course, people said, well, it's it's unfortunate, but there were never any great women filmmakers. And this was always there. This was never lost. They all, there was always some print of The Adventures of Prince Ahmed and her other 40 other films that she makes. Are, are many of them available, do you know? I think that they say that about a fourth of those, so 10 or f 10 or 12 films yeah. are available. Which is pretty good as far as, you know, right. films from this as era films go. from this era. And she continues making films up, uh, up through the 70s um, and then the early 80s. But the fascinating thing is that they ignored it. Yeah. It was there. And they ignored it because it was not doing the things that they thought great films should do. Yeah. And so they said, well, it's a cartoon, so it's not serious film. Misinterpreting that the cartoons became unserious much after this, much later than this. Yeah. And it possibly has to do with her ideas that truth can be found in the best way in fairy tales. She thinks that fairy tales are a really, really important way of accessing the truth. Yeah. And so we get into... The ideas, for example, of the her contemporary Ernst Cassirer, who is a philosopher, who says that myth is not about 
a certain content. It's not about flying carpets and it's not about uh, you know magical witches and things like this. Myth is a way of speaking and a way that we have of speaking of very important truths. And it is the way that we speak about these things that makes it myth. It's not the content of the myth itself. And she buys into that. As, as she said, you can learn more from a fairy tale about what's going on right now than you can by reading the newspapers. She says, look at what fairy tales are being used, what people are watching, what people are telling and how they're telling it. And the way that we craft these mythical narratives says everything about who we are and what we consider to be important. Yeah. Well, Rob, that's that's great. Thanks so much for, for being here. This is a really great uh, take on this film, I think. And thanks for helping to bring it to our attention. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.